0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Theology and Reality Podcast. Today, we are finally finishing up our series on Mariology. So today's episode, uh, today's Mariology episode will be the final one, the very last Mariology episode. And today's topic is Our Lady and the Church. So if you've been following along, um, thanks so much. And uh, at this point, you're probably... Really hoping and um, you know thankful that we're on our final episode in another month or so once we finish up our current uh, mini series topic on Alice von Hildebrand and uh, masculinity and femininity in her book uh, Man and Woman a Divine Invention we'll be moving on to a new topic and I think that that's going to be uh, a long theology series on spirituality, prayer, and spiritual theology. So we're finishing up our Mariology series today. Let's get into that. All right, so Our Lady and the Church. There's something interesting that happens in the late 19th and early 20th century where there are a number of shifting theological emphases as far as Mariology goes. There was a reaction in the early to mid 20th century to the scholarship and theological trends of the late 19th century and into the early 20th century. A lot of this had to do with the liturgical movement that you see. Often, uh, a lot of people don't know much about that, but they'll know, okay, well, there's obviously a liturgical movement that goes on that eventually leads to, uh, you know, Sacrosanctum Concilium and Vatican II and change of liturgy and all that kind of thing. Most people just kind of know, um, you know, some like St. Pius X changes the age of communion to, down to seven, down to the degrees and that kind of thing. Uh, so you have the liturgical movement in that time period. You also have, which we've briefly mentioned a little off and on. Throughout you, you have the tension, I suppose you could say, between the neo scholastic movement that comes out of the Thomistic revival in the late 19th century versus the the, the new theology, the nouvelle theologie that comes about in the early 20th century with figures like uh, Henri de Lubac, Louis Bouillet, uh, figures like that. And third, you have the Ressourcement movement, which was primarily a kind of French theological movement to go as the the term, you know, Ressourcement hints at, a a movement to to go back to the sources, to go back into the church fathers, back into scripture, uh, along with historical, critical, biblical studies. So in this time period, you have a lot of theological movement. Now, if we Sort of focus in on what we are talking about here in, in Mariology. There was a reevaluation of the predominant way of doing Mariology, the predominant schema. So at the time, all you know, from essentially the the Scholastic period onward, the dominant model for doing Mariology was the Christocentric model or the Christotypical model. So, in other words. It was it was actually Christology which was the fulcrum around which a coherent Mariology was developed. So when you were talking about Mary and Mariology, you were always doing it in light of Christology. Now this reevaluation occurs because there's a movement, a shift away from a Christocentric model to what we might call an ecclesiocentric or ecclesiotypical model. In this approach, the church is primary, and so the relation of the Blessed Virgin to the church is what was actually foundational. So it wasn't Mary in relation to Christ, it was Mary in relation to the church. And along with this new approach came a tangential question, which is this, is the Marian element to Catholic doctrine and piety to be minimized or maximized? There's a bunch of different reasons you might ask that question, which we don't have to get too much into. Um, But obviously, these two aren't related by an intrinsic necessity, right? So the, the idea of which model should be followed, Christocentric or ecclesiocentric, isn't related intrinsically or by necessity to this tangential question of minimizing or maximizing a kind of marrying element to Catholic doctrine. But the two concerns began to merge due to many of the other factors around the time of the Second Vatican Council regarding the progressive or traditional lenses through which many and probably too many things were viewed. So two fundamental truths, which should be complementary are all too often set in conflict with one another. We know this, right? It's our tendency as human beings, especially modern, especially modern Westerners, to always see things in terms of, you know, two competing visions or parties. We tend to view things in black and white, left and right, up and down, progressive, conservative, uh, all that all that kind of thing. So for example, um, you know, we some, sometimes the, the priesthood of the baptized, is put in competition with the institutional priesthood, right? You emphasize one or the other. And so the question becomes about the church as a whole, about the laity, the privileges of every Christian coming into conflict with the institutional priesthood and clericalism and special privileges and this kind of thing. So you can see the same dynamic at work in this particular question of the church versus Christ in the way that we're doing Mariology and developing Mariology. So these come into conflict with one another, not necessarily, but from different viewpoints. Where you have some people think, okay, well, it has to be Christocentric against an ecclesiocentric, and vice versa. Resolve that in in just a few minutes. So along with this new approach, or the questions about this new approach, come a whole host of questions for you know this. New Mariology. Whether that's a, you know, a good term or not is a good question. Whether or not uh, it, it actually is new is a second question. But again, there's a, a whole host of, of questions. So, you know, first, how does the evidence of Scripture and the Fathers stack up right, in regards to Mary's relation to church, to the church or to Christ? So essentially, how how has it been done before? Is this really something new? Or is this something we just kind of lost sight of and it actually was there from the beginning? Uh, second, is Mariology meant to have a single fundamental principle or no, right? So in other words, is this a helpful dichotomy you, no, no matter what, right? Do we really want to say what well, has to be related? It has to be ecclesiocentric or it has to be Christocentric. Is this actually a real dichotomy? Uh, third, are current trends in Mariology excessive in any way? Are there concerns about superstition or about ecumenical sensitivity? Right? First, are those good questions? Second, are they actually present? And third, if if they are good questions, if they are present, does it even really matter? Is this something that we should be concerned with or not? And finally, is there there actually a proper method for Mariology? Is there something that everyone should be doing, particular questions or a particular approach that everyone should be taking or not? Now, a typical post-conciliar approach looked like this So a typical approach to Mariology in the middle and the late half of the 20th century looked like this. So you look at scripture you look at the church fathers, they significantly, you, you notice that they significantly emphasize Mary's relation to the church over and against her relation to Christ. So this is the claim. And it's not what I'm personally claiming. This, this is the approach. This is the claim. This is how they're doing this. They say, okay, well, if if we look at scripture, if we look at the fathers, they're really emphasizing Mary's relation to the church. And so this makes it clear that the fundamental governing principle should be ecclesiocentric. It should be ecclesiotypical. And along with this, we need to develop a minimalist Mariology in order to snuff out various superstitions, in order to make it as attractive as possible to non-Catholics, And any method we develop or employ needs to be governed by a real critical skepticism, which will help us um, with our minimalism as far as our Mariology goes. So that's a typical approach by many different Catholic scholars, Catholic theologians in the 20th century. So a movement away from the Christocentric model a movement towards a kind of minimalism in a way that makes it as sort of appealing as possible. At least that's the claim. So how does, you know, so before we kind of answer a lot of this or try to solve a lot of problems that that might bring up, if we look at a number of different 20th century theologians on the subject, a lot of them will emphasize Mary as the church before the church wanting to talk about how Mary embodies what the church is meant to be and who she is meant, uh, who she's meant to be, how she's meant to act, how she's meant to respond to God in her own person. You kind of see that in the, uh, the first chapters of Luke, right in the annunciation. Well, Mary listens. She receives the word of God. She responds in faith. She obeys, she welcomes Christ into her heart, all that kind of stuff. Uh, In addition to this, in Mary, we see that the purpose of Israel is fulfilled. Right? She's daughter, Zion, in the flesh. We went over that in our uh, sort of biblical Mariology episode, num- a handful of episodes, actually. Now, there's plenty that we could say here right? as far as uh, Mary's relationship to Israel, her relationship to Jerusalem, to Zion. Uh, the Byzantine Akathist hymn, for instance, speaks of, speaks of Mary as the land. There's a lot of Israel typology in that hymn. There's a lot we could talk about as far as Mary as the hinge between the covenants, between the old and the new. We've already gone over how the woman of Revelation chapter 12 is both clearly the church as much as she is the blessed virgin. All of those things are really true. On the other hand, we could say that Christ also is the true Israel. And we read in Exodus, when Israel is my firstborn son, right? the suffering servant is both an individual and corporate person in the suffering servant songs in Isaiah, for instance, in those hymns in Isaiah, we see that the suffering servant seems to be both an individual and the people of Israel as a whole. And so there are all of the same issues in the Mary church theology as there are in Christology, as far as the church is the body of Christ. So in other words, pitting a Mary and the church view against a Mary and Christ view ultimately breaks down because the church is the body of Christ. They're so united that it doesn't really make any sense to split the two. All right, so what are some other things that come out in the 20th century that are very helpful, or if not helpful, at least help us to see a few important things? Uh, One of these was the view of the church as both virgin and mother. So the church's virgin references the purity of the church's faith, the fact that the church's faith in itself, as the church, as the body of Christ, holds the faith incorrupt or unadulterated in that sense. On the other hand, viewing the church's mother emphasizes the fact that she births members of the kingdom into the world via baptism. So she offers this gift of new life, which is what a mother does, to all those who believe and are baptized, who are reborn, who are born again via water. Now, these characteristics obviously appear first in Mary. And so you have this genuine emphasis on the unity between Mary and the church. The second thing to point out is that very important mystical moment on the cross where the blood and water flow from Christ's side. Now, the fathers and the scholastics, so the church fathers and the great theologians of the Middle Ages, they always see this as a symbol of the sacraments. And so the birth of the church from Christ's side as the church and bride from the new Adam is the image that is used, this image that is seen here in this moment. In the 20th century, this is not rejected or reinterpreted, but there's a real emphasis on the fact that the sacraments are what make the church. So the blood and water that flow from Christ, is the rebirth of the church since the church is firstborn in Mary at the Annunciation. Now, of course, we would all agree that this is true, right? Mary is the first member of the church since she's the first person to have faith in Christ. You could even argue that she's the first person to receive Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so she anticipates the sacramental economy as well. Right? So she might not receive the sacrament of the Eucharist, but she receives the reality of the Eucharist the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ within her at the Annunciation. But this doesn't need to come at the expense of seeing the church as being born from Christ's side, no more than we need to put Christ's gift of the Spirit to the apostles in John 20 in competition with the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. Those two are not in competition. They're not conflicting or in real tension They're complementary. And so I think we need to see the same thing at work here. And so the modern emphasis on Mary, on the the Mary-Church relation, is not something completely new or that needs to be put in conflict with anything that went before, but it's simply a restoration or a re-emphasis on things that the church had reflected on in times past. So it's not a novelty, it's not a replacement schema. So this Mo- this model, this mode of Mary in relation to the church is not something that needs to replace anything that had gone before it, but it can be brought into complement and nuance and enrich everything that had gone before. So trying to wrap up what we're talking about here. So, as with most things, there can't be one fundamental principle that excludes or marginalizes others. Right? So if For instance, if you were to ask, you know, what's the fundamental principle of scripture? What's the one key that I need to have it all make sense or to read it properly? There just isn't one. There there are plenty of very important ones, maybe even two or three really important ones. You could say, well, one of the keys, one of the most fundamental keys to reading scripture, one of the most fundamental principles for interpreting it is, um, you know, the, the covenant, for instance, right? That's been really popular in the 20th and 21st centuries. It's it's the covenant. The covenant makes sense of scripture. And that's definitely true. But if that's all you paid attention to, there's other things that you would miss out, right? You could say, well, it's it's sonship that actually makes sense of uh, divine revelation in scripture. You say, well, okay, it's no, it's not covenant, it's not, it's not sonship, it's uh it's actually the spousal relation that is revealed to Israel gradually between God and his people, right? This idea that uh, God calls Israel and the whole cosmos into relation into a relation of love with himself. And so that's why Genesis begins with man and woman and why sort of the pinnacle of uh, prophetic allegory in the Old Testament is the Song of Songs. And it's why the New Testament, uh, you know, Christ's public ministry starts with the wedding of Cana, Canaan. It's why the book of Revelation ends with the wedding feast of the lamb. And you could say, okay, well, great. All of those things are really important. But the fact of the matter is there's not one single fundamental principle that makes sense of everything around which everything revolves. There's a there's a whole host of things, a kaleidoscope that actually makes sense of it, where you need multiple vantage points. So the same applies to Mariology. Now, if you were to say, okay, well, what's the one thing that makes the most sense of it? Maybe it would be the divine motherhood, something we've talked about at length in times in episodes past. So the, the reality of Mary as the Godbearer, as the Theotokos, probably encapsulates all of the Marian privileges and functions. But the fact of the matter is, the more you include, the more you can make sense of it. So it's, you know, we we can really sum this up by saying that Mary's relation to the church is not in competition with Mary's relation to Christ. The 19th century theologian Matthias Schaben, for instance, builds a Mariology around the principle of what he calls Mary's bridal motherhood, which probably does the best, I think, to to synthesize the best of these two approaches. So Mary is the bride of Christ as his helpmate and companion, and she's also the mother of Christians. So she's the mother of St. John and all those who make up the body of Christ. But even if you did what Shabin does here, and say, "Okay, well, the principle is the bridal motherhood," that's kind of the key. Even Shabin, who says this, isn't trying to find a single, all-inclusive theme to the exclusion of anything else. Just like there's there's a lot of things in in the faith that have a kind of double principle or more. Think about, uh, you know, Christmas and Easter. If you ask the question, well, uh, you know, which which of those great Christian feasts is more important? Is it Christmas or is it Easter? Is it the incarnation or is it the redemption? Well, they're kind of two co-equal principles for the economy of salvation, right? You, You can't have Easter without Christmas, but Christmas is for the sake of Easter. And so they're they're not in competition. They're not in tension. They don't contrast with one another or cancel each other out. Right? One is for the sake of the other. They exist as kind of co equal principles. They're mutually illuminating. And so, any kind of low Mariology, for instance, any kind of low Mariology associated with Mary, with the Mary Church principle, is accidental. It's not necessary. So, if anyone is saying, well, what's really important is Mary's relation to the church, and that goes along with a low Mariology, those are accidental. So you could say, well, we yes, we can we can include this new vision, this new emphasis on Mary's relationship to the church. But we don't have to accept a lot of other things that people might say about it, as though this is the only way we can do it. And along with it, we have to de-emphasize a lot of Marian principles. We don't have to do any of that. We can take what is good, leave what is not. And finally, speaking of any particular tension, we will just close on this brief note. Uh, the veneration of Mary is something that we could spend an entire episode on, but I'll just leave it well, this this brief note. We know that there's not simply a difference in degree from the honor owed to the other members of the church triumphant and to God, right? These are differences in kind, right? So God is owed worship. He's owed adoration. When it comes to the communion of saints, we talk about veneration and dulia. Whether or not the difference in the honor owed to all the saints and the honor owed to Mary are different in kind or degree, you know, is probably a matter of semantics. But the fact of the matter is that all creatures depend on Mary's divine motherhood in a particular way, thanks to Mary's place in the hypostatic order which we've talked about in previous episodes this idea that Mary is the only creature in the cosmos who was actually bodily united to a divine person Christ in the womb and so when we talk about this um, you know the fancy word that we use is hyperdulia so in other words a you know special honor that we that we give to Mary it's not because she's you know the fourth person of the Trinity. It's not because she's somewhere halfway in between human and divine, right? She's a creature. We've acknowledged this the the whole time, but it's Mary's particular place given to her in divine providence, just for her, where the cosmos is renewed by means of her substantial union with the word. So this brings with it a special kind of gratitude. So in other words, the simple way of putting it is that Mary's given a special gift and a special place in salvation history that nobody else was given. So in that sense, God loves her more because we talk about how, okay. on the one hand, God loves everyone equally because he brings and sustains everyone in being. But on the other hand, we talk about God's love as the gift of his grace. And if Mary receives a different, special, you know, much more important grace than any of the rest of us in the incarnation, then that brings with it a special kind of gratitude. But even with that, there's no threat to God, there's no threat to Christ. As with all things, God is in need of nothing. God plus all created goods just equals God. Infinity plus a thousand is still just infinity. So God plus creation is just God. So the reverence and honor given and shown to Mary or any of the other saints, or it takes nothing away from God. The, the way to make the most sense of this is to always, and I say this about a lot of things and we'll kind of conclude on this note because I know it's been running a little bit long. It's when something doesn't make sense about the faith, try to find a parallel or an analog to family life. And in this sense, you could say when children honor their mother it doesn't somehow detract from the honor that they give or owe to their father and so when honor is given to mary or any of the other saints it doesn't somehow detract from what we give or offer or owe to god in justice there are two different things right you can do you know you can do two things at once right two things can be true so now imagine that the father literally created this mother you're supposed to honor. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the image. It's kind of the reality that we get in Mary. And, you know, it's a little bit of a cliche, but there's a certain sense in which it's true where, you know, if we're commanded to honor our father and mother, that's obviously what Jesus did with his own mother. And there's really no danger of us honoring Mary uh, more than her own son did. Right. So, You know, how much more would this honor that we offer to Christ's mother redound to her creator? So with that, and it was kind of a lot, a little bit, maybe a little bit scattered to try and finish everything off. Uh, With that ends our Mariology series. So thank you so much for following along in this, you know, winding and months long sort of series through Mariology from the biblical data all the way through the systematic and dogmatic and historical things that we've gone along. So hopefully this was insightful and helpful. All of the episodes are just still in the podcast channel, in the archives. Like I said, we're we're doing right now and we're finishing up a book mini-series on Alice von Hildebrand. And so in a couple of weeks, once we're all done that we'll jump into our next theology series, which should be Uh, spirituality, prayer, and spiritual theology. So I hope that you will join us and sign up for that if you're not already. Uh, Other than that, enjoy your summer. Thanks for being here.